Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, Ice Cubes in the Family Bathtub, Amateurs Dip into Cold Therapy by Julie Wernaw. Then an article by Alan Ripp, an old tape brings back an old friend. Charles Hooper has an article, How the FDA Helped Fuel the Opioid Epidemic. And then Bobby Jindal and Shirag Parji article, Mammograms Can Promote Heart Health. And we'll follow that up with an article by Joe Queenan, The Ugly World of Add-on Fees for Everything. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article, Ice Cubes in the Family Bathtub, Amateurs Dip into Cold Therapy. Justin Molnar, a 40-year-old doctor, emptied his family's two ice makers into the bathtub at his home in Orlando, Florida, added cold water, checked the temperature with a thermometer, stripped down to his swim trunks, and hopped in. His wife, Blair Henke, heard him screaming less than a minute later. I thought he was a wimp, said Dr. Henke, a former marathoner. The ice cubes all melted. That's not cold. Ice water bathing once was the bone-chilling specialty of Scandinavian health fanatics and pro-athletes with aching muscles. Now, thanks to social media influencers such as Dutch extreme athlete Wim Hof, a.k.a. Iceman, actress Gwyneth Paltrow, and ultramarathoner David Goggins, it is having a mainstream moment. Amateurs like Dr. Molnar are checking out for themselves the alleged health benefits of cold water immersion, including stress reduction and boosted energy. But first, many have to surmount the problem. Unlike Mr. Hoff, they don't have a glacial lake nearby to plunge into. Instead, they are taking cold showers, filling kiddie pools with ice, or cannonballing into backyard pools in the winter. They are posting videos of themselves climbing into trash cans and large freezers filled with ice water. Willie McKenzie, 38, who runs a cannabis company in Bear Lake, Michigan, said Mr. Hoff's ice-cold outdoor exploits seem like an antidote to the malaise of everyday life with its lack of physical challenging. You don't have to hunt for food. You don't even have to go to the grocery store, Mr. McKenzie said. I think a lot of people are feeling this way. He decided to give his own routine a cold jolt. The main problem was finding a place to immerse his 6-foot, 215-pound frame in the water. Mr. McKenzie said he didn't want to pay $5,000 for ice bath tub he found online. So he bought a 180-gallon trough for feeding cows and horses and installed it on his porch next to the hot tub. He gets up at 4 a.m. to record himself bathing in ice water with a rubber duck while sharing his thoughts. Sometimes he needs two or three takes to get things right. 
Before winter arrived, he was buying 60 to 80 pounds of ice every other day at the local gas station. That wasn't sustainable, he said, so when it warms up, he plans to buy a pricey tub with its own chiller. Robert Allen, a researcher at the Center for Applied Sport Physical Activity and Performance at the University of Central Lancaster in Preston, United Kingdom, said cold water bathing can be traced back to the ancient Egyptians. Along with ancient Greeks and Romans, the Egyptians used cold therapies for health, he wrote in a study published last February in the European Journal of Applied Physiology. Athletes, he said, have used cold therapy in recovery since the 1960s. Matt Goddard, 32, a fitness trainer and former professional boxer in Hampshire, United Kingdom, said he used to do squats to warm up before dunking up to his neck in a tub of cold water. These days, as the father of two young children, he settles for a cold shower. This psychological battle that's happening in the space of 30 seconds, he said, it feels like you're conquering yourself every time you do it. His wife, Rebecca Riley, 30, said she loves a hot shower. But after years of listening to Mr. Goddard tout the health benefits, she started jumping into cold showers every so often to wake herself up. Mr. Hoff, the Iceman, would approve. Learning to have a cold shower gradually going longer is a superb sensation of our primordial inner nature, he said. Marcus Glasson, 42, said he is glad the rest of the world is warming up to the ice bathing he grew up with in a subarctic area in northern Sweden. For years after marrying his American wife, Vanessa Carlson, 38, he tried to recreate in warmer climates the cold water conditions he was accustomed to. At Christmas, when they visited her mother in Florida, he would dive into the outdoor pool first thing in the morning. It was cold, but not Swedish cold. Her mother, originally from Columbia, would scream out the window in shock. He tried to explain that it was good for inflammation to wake yourself up, that it was a dopamine hit, said Ms. Carlson. We just thought he was insane. The two met while studying in Barcelona and have lived in Abu Dhabi, New York, and England. Everywhere they lived, Ms. Carlson said, she had to adjust to her husband's showering quirks. When I go in after him, it's all the way on cold, she said. You have to wait until it warms up. Two years ago, they moved back to northern Sweden. Mr. Carlson is back to ice bathing he was raised on, dipping into holes cut into the ice by the local municipality. His friends roll around naked in the snow. He feels more at home here, Miss Carlson said. And now, an old tape brings back an old friend by Alan Rip. I recently shipped some old jazz cassettes to my son in California to enjoy in his retro Range Rover. But I held back one tape, Mark, Blues for Rip, dated April 1986. Although I'd long forgotten the cassette, as soon as I picked it up, I recognized it as a homemade recording of my friend John playing the piano. While waiting for an Amazon-ordered cassette player, 
something I hadn't owned in years, I revisited my friendship with John going back to 1972 when we were college freshmen bonding over a love of jazz. The halls of our dorm echoed with Cat Stevens, James Taylor, and Joni Mitchell. But John and I huddled in his room listening to pianists Oscar Peterson, Barry Harris, and Red Garland, whom John revered for his rich black chords harmonizing a tune's melody. He schooled me on Phineas Newborn, a prodigious keyboard talent who was also hospitalized for mental breakdowns. A Scarsdale, New York native, John was haunted by his trust fund inheritance and perpetually fretted over a heart murmur. He was an avid mountain climber but walked on the tips of his hiking boots like a dancer. John had the gentle voice of a late-night DJ and offered murmur to himself. He and his roommate studied to the soothing, unseventy strains of orchestras and the Ray Conniff singers. John had studied piano with the great Roland Hanna and continued playing while pursuing an economics degree. I sat with him in student lounges and practice rooms as he instructed me on bebop licks. At the keyboard, he had a heavy touch, bellowing, yeah, when he found the chord he liked, followed by a trance-like silence. He described every jazz musician's grail of locking into a rhythmic groove known as being in the pocket. We saw each other intermittently after graduation. John became a lawyer and moved to Boston, struggling with depression but performing with a singer at clubs on Cape Cod. We hit the Village Vanguard and Blue Note on his trips to New York. When I began taking piano lessons, he gave me a spiral-bound fake book, pages of simple charts for playing standards like Stella by Starlight and Autumn in New York. He carried a perpetual sadness and was beset by romantic longings, but couldn't convert his Charlie Brown crushes into real relationships. I last saw him over Thanksgiving 1997. He was excited about a woman he'd met hiking, but it had fizzled when we spoke months later. Then he put the phone down and played me a ballad on his upright piano, clunky but full of feelings. Sadly, we didn't connect again. In November 2000, he jumped from his apartment balcony, ending his life at age 45. When my tape player arrived, I popped in John's cassette and, and was immediately back beside him on a campus piano bench. Ain't misbehavin', take four, he announced, setting a crisp pace and keeping time with his shoe. He had more command of the instrument than I recalled, though the familiar doubt was there, as when he paused during a song to remark, that was stupid, wasn't it? He laughingly introduced a mashup of I Want to Hold Your Hand with White Christmas and somehow pulled it off. Adding an unnamed bassist, he then called out It Could Happen to You, Take Two, turning into a swinging, joyous, foot-tapping performance that would have pleased his mentor, Mr. Hanna. You did it, man, I said aloud to John, even if it was many years too late. You really could play in the pocket. And now, mammograms can promote heart health. 
50 years of technological advancement revolutionized the treatment of heart attacks and increased survival rates. But heart disease remains the nation's leading cause of death for women. While we have made dramatic progress, efforts to prevent heart disease have been disappointing, especially for women. Yet a standard feature of women's health, mammography, offers a promising gateway for cardiovascular screening through breast arterial calcification, or BAC. BAC consists of visible deposits of calcium in breast arteries, which can be seen on mammograms and should prompt doctors to screen for heart disease. Since the x-ray primarily screens for breast cancer, this finding is rarely reported and leaves most patients unaware of the amount of BAC on their exams. Women who get mammograms reduce their 10-year risk of death from breast cancer by more than 40%. This finding could conceivably lower mortality rates for heart disease too. Doctors usually screen patients for heart disease by evaluating traditional risk factors such as high blood pressure and cholesterol, diabetes, and family history. A doctor might order a CAT scan to evaluate coronary artery calcification or calcium deposits in heart arteries. Though plaque buildup and calcification in the arteries supplying breast tissue can have similar causes as coronary artery calcification, it doesn't receive the same attention as calcification in other vessels. Women with BAC are 51% more likely to develop heart disease than those without BAC, and the Canadian Society of Breast Imaging is working to share this finding with doctors. The use of machine learning software in medical imaging has led to new incidental findings. In mammography, breast arterial calcification can be quantified to evaluate the risk of cardiovascular disease and death. The implications for women's health extend beyond heart disease. High levels of these deposits are found in patients with end-stage kidney disease and diabetes. Regulators must embrace technology that helps bridge gender gaps in healthcare. Although the Food and Drug Administration has allowed quicker development tracks for some software tools that help doctors make clinical decisions, government classification and approval for artificial intelligence-enabled products can take years. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services should make establishing payment codes for products involving women's heart disease a priority to prompt private insurers to cover new service lines. Heart attacks in women have been poorly understood because of insufficient research and screening. BIC measurements can take advantage of cancer screenings to improve cardiovascular health. And now another medical-oriented article, How the FDA Helped Fuel the Opioid Epidemic by Charles Hooper. At an April Senate subcommittee hearing, Food and Drug Administration Commissioner Robert Califf blamed the pharmaceutical industry for a lack of non-addictive, non-opioid pain medications. In his telling, the FDA is waiting with open arms for any new analgesics 
that industry may develop. We need to do everything we can do to push industry and make this happen. He's partially right. The government should commit itself to supporting private innovation. But it is disingenuous to blame industry for a dearth of treatments. Consider the evolution of the drug Toradol, generic name Keterolac, a case study in the agency's propensity to scuttle effective medicine. Several decades ago, the pharmaceutical company Syntax, where I once worked, discovered and developed injectable Toradol, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, or NSAID, used to provide morphine levels of pain relief without the same abuse potential as opioids. The FDA approved the drug in 1989, and it soon hit the market under the name Toradol IV IM joining other popular, though less potent, NSAIDs such as Advil, Motrin, and Aspirin. Before approval, an FDA employee suggested that Toradol IV IM be given with a loading dose, that is, twice the standard amount. Against their better judgment, Syntex employees complied. The loading dose turned out to be a disaster. GI bleeding killed 97 patients worldwide between 1990 and 1993. The FDA subsequently changed Taradol's label and instructions, eliminating the guidance for double dosages, but by that point the reputational damage had been done. Injectable Taradol IV IM is a great jug. Many doctors, primarily in emergency rooms, use it daily. Yet most patients would rather swallow a pill than get a shot. Responding to this well-known preference, Syntex developed an oral version and submitted it to the FDA. The agency approved Toradol oral in 1991, but gave it a label that essentially precluded its use. Limiting the drug's dosage to about a third of its effective amount, imposing a strict limit of five days of use, and mandating that the oral tablets follow an injection or IV dose of Toradol IV IM. The upshot? You could receive Toradol oral from your pharmacist only after you had received it via an injection, say, from an emergency room doc. The requirement, along with the super low dose and limited duration, guaranteed failure. A bottle of these oral tablets should be in almost every American's medicine cabinet today. It probably never will be. Now that Toradol is generic, there's no way to make money on getting the proper dose approved. The FDA could admit that it was wrong and adjust its approval accordingly, but that would require a healthy dose of humility. Toradol IV IM is well-established, relatively safe, and works about as well as morphine to reduce pain. It's also non-addictive and abuse-proof because it does not provide an opioid high. What we really need is an oral formulation with the proper dose for use at home, at work, and while traveling. Such a drug could help alleviate the opioid crisis. If Mr. Kaloff is serious about doing everything to bring beneficial drugs to market, here is a 
perfect place to start. And now Joe Queenan's The Ugly World of Add-on Fees for Everything. I couldn't watch the lowly Colorado Rockies get smacked around by my Philadelphia Phillies recently on Sunday. I forgot that the TV broadcast was only on Peacock. Though my subscription to Major League Baseball streaming service allows me to watch almost every Phillies game from my home in New York, this one required $4.95 for a monthly Peacock subscription, even if you had local TV in Philadelphia. It's not only Peacock, which has a bunch of Sunday games reserved. There are also games that only appear on Amazon or Apple TV Plus or YouTube TV. Worse, these broadcasts generally use announcers who don't normally cover your teams. This ruins everything. Fans form lifelong relationships with local announcers. In some towns, they put up statues to these guys. But you can't have a relationship with someone who only does two or three games a year and mispronounces the closer's name and doesn't know that the fans hate the first baseman and doesn't know that the fans hate him. I'm now dreading the thought that other businesses will institute this kind of maddening, illogical policy, charging premiums on certain days for inferior products. Because here's how it could look. You go to the diner on Sunday morning, all set for your usual heaping pile of flapjacks with sausage and home fries, and it turns out that on certain Sundays, Unless you pay a $4.95 supplemental fee, you can only get oatmeal or a corn muffin. And even if you pay extra, the effervescent waitress you love to banter with has been furloughed for the day, replaced by a dour, hatchet-faced man with no bantering skills. Or planning on some relaxing trout fishing this weekend? Sorry, the river is closed to non-subscribers every third Saturday. So are the brooks. You'll just have to pay a one-time charge and settle for a creek. At nursery school dropout, you find out that your kids can't play with the stuffed pig on Tuesdays unless you fork over $4.95 for the stuffed pig supplement. What do you mean you didn't know? Didn't you read the fine print in the school's mission statement? Bruce Springsteen won't play Born to Run tonight because it's in the key of E major, which costs extra, plus the saxophone solo will be played on the kazoo. Without receiving a supplement, Taylor Swift is not doing any breakup songs tonight, and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra has blacked out anything by Beethoven on the first of the month. Unless you pony up extra, you'll have to settle for Sibelius. That big upfront fee you paid for the privilege of buying a ticket? Nope, it doesn't cover that. Surprise add-ons could also apply to air travel, besides the extra fees we're already paying for having bags or having seats. On Supplement Sunday, you learn after takeoff, your plane won't land in Dallas or Houston unless you pay extra. Otherwise, you'll just have to make do with Lubbock. Car travel isn't exempt either. You want gas in the middle of the night while driving across Death Valley? Fine, but it's subscription only on Saturday nights at the highway rest stop. 
Hope you have enough fuel to make it to the station 30 miles down that dirt road. Diesel only, by the way. We'll even need to pay more attention to medical checkups. Didn't you realize that no one can check your kidney function or give you an EKG on the third Thursday of the month? You didn't get the text about a supplement to see your regular proctologist instead of a physician's assistant? Same deal at the dentist. Do you seriously want to risk getting that root canal done by the trainee and endodontist? Nope, didn't think so. That'll be an extra $4.95, please. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.